Good and gracious God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for your word, the very word that gives us life. Life not because they were words written by men, but because they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. And these words are, in, in, are inerrant and infallible to our grace. And so, Lord, as we hear from your word this morning, I pray that our ears would be open to hear and our hearts would be ready to receive what it is that you want to speak to us, how it is that you want to speak to us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would make very much of yourself and very little of me. Won't you do it? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible with you, or if you want to grab a pew Bible and turn to Luke chapter 23, verse 44 through 46, uh, in the pew Bible, that's page 919. And so if you're curious about what passage we're in today, we're going to be in Luke chapter 23, verses 44 through 46. But as we open our Bibles to Luke today, we're actually coming to the conclusion of our series on the final words of Jesus. These words of Jesus on the cross, and through which we have had seven of them. And today is the seventh. And so we'll find ourselves concluding today with these words of Jesus as he gives up his final breath. But before we dive in, let us remind ourselves that as we have been listening to these words of Jesus, everyone has in some way pointed us through the Scriptures, through the Old Testament, showing us how the Old Testament reveals the work of Christ on the cross the importance of being able to go back and look at the Old Testament, that it's not just some book that we should forget, but a book that we should read and embrace to see how God's story throughout all history was to lead to that final moment on the cross where all of creation would be redeemed. Last week, as we celebrated Easter I think we came to the most important thing to realize is that Jesus was always God's plan A. That Jesus wasn't some plan B when humanity fell into sin. But Jesus was always going to be the solution. But it was at the appointed time that Jesus stepped in to his creation for our sake that he might redeem it and that he would redeem us for all that have come to believe in his name. And with that in mind, as we turn to Luke 23 today, verses 44 through 46, we hear these final words of Christ on the cross. And it was now about the sixth hour and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour, because the sun was obscured, and the veil of the sanctuary was torn in two. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, 
Into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. As we open this passage today, we actually read something familiar, something we've covered before. That it was now the sixth hour, which is about noontime, and it was dark until about the ninth hour, which is about three o'clock. That's some simple math, right? If it's from the sixth to the ninth, then it's three hours, and so from noon to three, and so they're entering into the afternoon, but darkness is covering the whole land. And we already discussed how this is actually a a, a revelation of maybe something that happened in Exodus during the ninth plague in Egypt, when darkness covered the whole land for three days. And here it happens for three hours, and That plague was a sign to the people of Pharaoh's hard heart. And maybe it's also a sign to the people standing at the cross. A reminder of maybe the hard heart that they hold against God. Because they hold it against his son. And so it took us back to that moment. And so we read this same passage again. We hear these same words, but from a different author. And how these moments, all these words that we've been hearing, are taking place in almost a consecutive manner. Like, we hear that this darkness fell, and then we heard the words of Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And here, Luke tells us, darkness falls, and at the ninth hour we hear Jesus say these final words, into your hands I commit my spirit. And so, I just say that in order to kind of give us a timeline that these events aren't as spread out as they might feel since we're only discussing one a week. This isn't taking place over hours, it's taking place over moments. Over moments. Is Jesus giving these final words to us? And so we're starting to see these simultaneous events kind of come into view, come into the picture. And during this darkness, as it was coming to an end, we hear that Though the sun was obscured in the ninth hour, the veil of the sanctuary was torn in two in verse 45. The veil is torn. As all these events are happening, we then hear of something else happening. That the veil rips in two, that the curtain is rendered You might be asking yourself, okay, but what is this curtain? Why does it matter? Why is it important? In order to understand that, we actually have to turn all the way back to Exodus again. Again, we see how all these stories are connected throughout the Old Testament because the people of God were released from Egypt due to the plagues, and now they're entering into the wilderness, and God is giving them instruction as how they are to worship him in the wilderness. And one of those ways was by creating a tabernacle, this meeting place of God. 
And so in Exodus chapter 26, verse 31 through 33, we hear what this veil, what this curtain is. It says, you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet material and twisted fine linen. It shall be made with cherubim, the work of a skillful designer. And you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, their hooks also being of gold, on four bases of silver. You shall hang up the veil under the clasps, and you shall bring in the ark of the testimony, that is the ark of the covenant, there within the veil, so that the covenant, the ark of the covenant sits behind the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place and the holy of holies. That is, that this veil separates the holy place, which is the inner court, so to speak, so to think of it, within that, within that tabernacle, within that tent of meeting. But then there's a curtain within the tabernacle, that when you go behind it is considered the Holy of Holies, and that's where this Ark of the Covenant resides. And the Ark of the Covenant is where the mercy seat was. The Ark of the Covenant was the seat of God manifest on earth, is the place where God came to meet with Moses. And Moses was the one who was allowed to go behind the veil to meet with God. But everybody else had to stay on the other side of the veil. As events progressed and history moved forward, eventually to go into the holies of holies was reserved only for the high priest. Only the high priest was allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies, into the place of meeting with God in front of the Ark of the Covenant, in front of the mercy seat. It was only the high priest that could go in there. And really, they could only enter into that place once a year on the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement. And how interesting that's on the Day of Atonement that the high priest was allowed to go through the veil. And as we hear our scripture this morning, the one who atones for our sin, an event occurs with that same veil. With that veil that enters into the most holy place where God manifests his presence on earth. And the reason that only the high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies is because God's holiness met with our unholiness, would cause us to die. You might think I'm exaggerating, but the Scriptures reveal to us that even the high priest had to have a rope tied around them, that just in case they entered into the Holy of Holies and they met with God and they died, that their body would be able to be pulled back out. Because God is that holy of a God 
And his holiness met with our unholiness doesn't end well for us. And so God made a provision so that his holiness wouldn't cause us to die. He made this space where he would be so that we would be okay. As he approached this place, this work, until the day that Jesus came and everything changed. But until that time, the Holy of Holies had to remain separate from the profane. And so we're starting to see these things start to align together. How this clearly stated in the Old Testament and Exodus and the creation of that place, the creation of the curtain and its purpose and why it existed and who was allowed to go behind it and why they were allowed to go behind it. And then we start to hear, though, that in our passage today that a new sacrifice has been made. And in the simultaneous event of that person giving up his life for us, that curtain was torn in two. So why does that matter? Why does it matter that when Jesus gave up his life, that the, curtain, that the curtain was rendered and that the Holy of Holies was revealed. It's because in the work of Jesus, as we talked about last week, imputed his righteousness upon us who believe. Therefore, we have been made holy, even in our unholiness. And that way, when the curtain was torn in two, it meant that we now had access to the Father ourselves. No longer was the high priest the only one allowed to enter into the presence of God. But now all who believed in the name of Jesus and had been given his righteousness were afforded the same right as the high priest to enter into the presence of God. Further, the rendering of the veil means that no longer is God's manifest presence limited to a single space. No longer do we have to go to the temple to meet with God. Instead, as that curtain was rendered in two, it meant that the presence of God was available to all, anywhere, at any time. I think this was demonstrated beautifully when Jesus met with the Samaritan woman at the well. And she questioned Jesus as to why the Jews said, you have to worship God in the temple. And Jesus responded to her. He said, the day is coming that no longer will you worship God in that temple or on this mountain, but you will worship God in spirit and in truth. God, through Jesus, 
opened worship to him into his presence anywhere in any time so long as we worship in spirit and in truth. We as Christians, we as believers in Jesus, we don't have to go anywhere to worship him. He's already invited you into that place of worship. You don't have to come here on Sunday morning to worship him. Please come on Sunday morning. But you don't have to come here to worship him. You can worship him at home, alone, on a Wednesday morning at 6 a.m. And guess what? God will be there. The Father will be present with you. You can worship on Friday at 11 p.m. when you can't go to sleep and anxiety is gripping you or fear or grief or sorrow or pain, you can worship him on Friday at 11 p.m. in your own bed. And guess what? He'll be there. Because God is no longer limited to being only present in the most holy place, in the holy of holies. Because the curtain was torn in two. But that curtain could have only been rendered if the work of Christ was completed. If the work of Jesus on the cross was finished. So that those who have believed upon his name would receive his righteousness in place of our own unrighteousness. That is what the work of Jesus was on the cross. In fact, as we turn to Romans chapter 5, verses 10 and 11, we hear that so clearly. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Reconciliation is this word that means relationship has been restored. Right relationship, correct relationship has been restored. That was the work of atonement. That's why in the Old Testament, that the, on the day of the atonement, when the Passover lamb was slaughtered, that the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies because a reconciliation took place. But today, there was one final sacrifice in Christ on the cross that not only atoned for our sins, but reconciled us to God forever. Our relationship with him has been restored as it was always meant to be from the very beginning where God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. That relationship has been restored to us because of Jesus on the cross 
And we can have that relationship with the Father because the curtain was torn in two. So if Jesus died for you and for me to have that kind of access to the Father, why would we not take him up on it? Why would we not take the, the, the Lord of all the universe on the offer to be in relationship with the Father? I was thinking about this, and one way that I would think about it was imagine that somebody just gave you the keys to a brand new Porsche. They gave you those keys, and you now have those keys. What a gift that is. Would you not want to get in that Porsche and just race it across 16? I mean, you're going to get pulled over, but would you not want to do it? But being given access and right relationship to God is a gift that so many of us in our lives neglect. It's like being given keys to the Porsche and we allow that Porsche just sit in the driveway day after day after day, never taking the keys and putting them in the ignition. Maybe it's because we received those keys and we don't actually know how to start the car. They gave them to us and we're like, I, I, this thing's so fancy, I don't know, does this go into something? Am I supposed to push a button? Do I need to switch a lever? Do I need to pump the gas six times and then hit the clutch and then the brake and then maybe it'll turn on? Maybe it just feels too complicated and maybe that's why you're not getting into the car. Or maybe you just don't know where you want to go once you get in it. Maybe you're like, well, you know, I've now got these keys, I figured out how to start it, but I don't know where I'm going. So it just kind of sits in idle. You're just kind of like, okay, well, I'm going to turn it back off because now I'm just wasting gas, and gas is like $10 a gallon now. I can't afford that. And so it still sits in the driveway, and you haven't gone anywhere. Okay, now you might recognize, okay, I know maybe what I should do, but I don't know how to get there. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know what's going on. Or, my goodness, maybe you're afraid that you're going to start driving and it's going to stall. Maybe you're going to wreck it. Maybe you're going to mess something up about that car. Maybe you're afraid of the insurance premiums. And you're just like, I'm not driving this thing. Like, I'm not paying $500 a month just to keep this car insured. I feel like our relationship to God can be like that car sometimes. We have this access readily available to him, but maybe we, we just don't know how to start. We don't know what it means to actually begin relationship with God. Maybe we're sitting there and we're wondering, okay, well, okay, maybe I do know kind of how I begin a relationship with God. It's, it's really similar to any relationship that I would begin with a person that I just met. I would ask them their name, how they're doing, what's going on. Find out what they're all about. For God, we learn all those things through the reading of Scripture and through prayer and through worship and through singing songs and hymns to one another and allowing ourselves to meet Him in His own presence. 
Maybe we don't know where we're going. Where, where is my relationship with God supposed to end up? Where is it supposed to go? Where is it leading me to? Maybe there's an unsurety about, well, what's, what's the goal here? What's the goal in being relationship with God? Well, I like to ask, what's the goal in any relationship with a friend, with a spouse, with a loved one? It's to enjoy them. It's to rejoice in their presence. And when we're struggling, it's to ask them for help. There's no end goal in our relationship with God except that our relationship with God would get better and better and better. But maybe you're just afraid that it'll stall, that you'll mess up, that you can't do everything perfectly. Well, guess what? You can't. None of us can. I certainly can't, and so I don't hold you to that expectation, and guess what? Neither does the Father. You can't out-mess up the work of Jesus on the cross. You can't out-mess up the work of Jesus on the cross. So let it get messy. Go to God, mess up. Go to God again. Don't do it perfectly. Go to God again. Miss a couple days in Scripture. Go to God again. Keep going back again and again and again and let him show you how good he is to you. I'm not going to allow myself to have the key to the Porsche and not get in it and enjoy it. And I am not going to allow myself to have access to the creator of all things, but who particularly sent his son to die specifically for me. I'm not going to have access like that and just neglect it. No offense, I want that guy on my side. I want to know him. And I want him to know me. I want you to know him. And I want him to know you. Because you have been given that kind of access in the work of Christ on the cross. But what does that have to do all with these final words of Christ? And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. First thing for us to notice in these words. Even though Christ had been through the most hellish event in history, even though he had suffered so much pain, so much anguish, 
even after everything. He never stopped referring to God as Father. He believed so strongly in the character of who the Father was that nothing could sway him from trusting in his Father who was in heaven. Nothing could sway him. It didn't matter if that Porsche got a flat tire. It didn't matter if it got a scratch or a dent. It didn't matter if the roof came flying off. Nothing could sway him from the goodness of the gift of the Father, of his goodness towards his Son, toward this eternal relationship that they shared with together, he was unwavering. We had already talked about how unwavering he was in his desire to fulfill the will of the Father, but he was also in himself unwavering in his faith toward the Father and his goodness. I'll be honest, it doesn't take much for me to be derailed. It doesn't take much for me to be like, this isn't going well, And then I miss like three days of getting up in the morning and reading my Bible and praying as I normally do. But for Jesus, phased not. Lord, how I long to be in that place where I am unfazed by the rocky road of life or unfazed by Rocky Road ice cream. Either way, there is this moment where I want to see God as Jesus saw God for his entirety of his goodness, knowing that no matter what is going on, God is still good. So good, in fact, that I could say the words, into your hands, I commit my Spirit. I like control way too much to tell God, into your hands I commit my spirit. And yet, we see in this final act, Jesus relinquishing the control. He knows what's going to happen, but even if it doesn't, he says, God, here I am. Into your hands I commit my spirit. I commit my being. I commit myself to you. I trust you that much. I know you're that good. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Wow, those words. I mean so much more when I think about it like that. Can I really ever get to that place? Can I really ever have that much trust in God? Can I really believe in his goodness that much that I can be like God? I commit it all to you. Everything. Jesus was Jesus, so he could do it, but Is that really humanly possible? Well, I'm reminded of Acts chapter 7. 
when we hear about this one man named Stephen. And Stephen begins to give this testimony of the gospel to the people. Starts to preach Jesus. And what does he receive? Well, verse 54 tells us, Now when they heard this, they became furious in their hearts, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But crying out with a loud voice, they covered their ears and rushed at him with one accord. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their garments at the feet of the young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as Stephen was calling out and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. That is boldness. That is a life lived in relationship with God the way that Jesus had relationship with the Father. It is a full trust and commitment to him, knowing no matter what comes, I will commit my spirit to you. I will give it to you and I will trust, O Lord. But I want us to notice how this is possible for me and for you today. Verse 55, but being full of the Holy Spirit. Being full of the Holy Spirit. We can't hope to accomplish that kind of relationship if we aren't willing to allow the Holy Spirit to work in our lives. If we're not willing to invite the Holy Spirit to play a role And the only way that you do that is also by committing yourself to him. By giving up control of your life so that he might work in you and through you. That his Holy Spirit would have the space that you have granted in order to work in you and through you. In this same manner as he worked in Stephen's life. I want to end with 1 Peter 4 verse 19. Because this is the call of the Christian. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God must entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing good. It's actually when you're going through the trial and the suffering, and the hardship, and the pain inside the will of God that you are actually pushed to entrust yourself to him.
So my question for us is this day, can we be like Jesus? Who suffered immeasurably more than we could ever imagine on that cross and yet still committed himself to the Father. Will you too commit yourself to him and let him have the control in your life that you have yet to give up completely and then see what God can do through you? Maybe you'll be the next Stephen Maybe the next Paul. Who knows? But God can accomplish much when we commit our spirit to him. Let's pray. Good and gracious God, thank you that in you much has been accomplished. That in Jesus all things have been accomplished. And those final words, it is finished, reign true in us through the work of atonement and reconciliation. But Lord, let us not just receive it. Now let's live it. Let's live reconciled to the Father in relationship with Him. Let us not just receive the keys and then do nothing with them. But let us commit ourselves to You as You committed Yourselves to us through Your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.